up with all the major health products that you need to keep your body strong. It's 206. Time for the Planet Watch Radio Show with your hosts, Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan. Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm Joe Jordan. Today on the program, we'll focus on what is happening in Puerto Rico with efforts to create a more sustainable energy system in the wake of Hurricane Maria. How much solar will the island install? And what is the potential for microgrids to make that island more sustainable in the future in the wake of future hurricanes? More on that in just a moment. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can write to us via email, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And if you want to support Planet Watch, we have a new Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon is a web platform that lets you give small or large donations from two to $200 a month. In return, you will get rewards like a first listen to our podcast, shout-outs on the show, and even a cameo appearance. At higher levels, we are offering a stargazing party or a physics and nature walk by myself, Joe Jordan, or a combo campfire sing-along star party with Rachel and Joe. Check out our video and options at patreon.com slash planet underscore watch. Again, patreon.com slash planet watch with an underscore between the planet and the watch. And we thank you. Wouldn't it be fun in this weather to do a star party? <laughs> it's pouring down <laughs> rain in California. And for those listeners in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, big greetings to you. Welcome on board the Planet Watch family. We're very pleased to be on the air in Chapel Hill and uh, in Carborough, North Carolina. And also a big welcome to our Planet Watch family, to the Voice of Oklahoma radio listeners who are now running occasional Planet Watch shows. And, of course, the, our flagship uh, first companion station at WGRN in Columbus, Ohio. Eugene Beer set us up with that. Thank you so much for running Planet Watch. If you know someone out there in the world and you're listening who might want to run Planet Watch on their station, please get in touch with us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And we actually are heard all over the planet. At least 15 countries have reported in and... Well, we're building the empire of truth and fun here, folks. It's a good way to uh, colonize <laughs> your brain with some information about how to fix the situation we find ourselves in. We do have a news roundup for you, and then we'll go to our interviews about Puerto Rico with a journalist and an energy expert in just a moment. We'll have Caroline King, one of our interns from Cabrillo College, start us off. Uh, yeah. Hi, this is a story about innovations with um, some more solar technology. Uh, scientists from the University of Singapore have developed a prototype device that mimics natural photosynthesis to produce ethylene gas using only sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide. Ethylene is the building block of polyethylene, which is an important chemical for manufacturing things such as plastic and rubber. The current method of this production involves burning fossil fuels, requires mass amounts of energy, and leaves a significant carbon footprint. The new artificial photosynthesis system they've created can convert carbon dioxide and water into ethylene using only a copper catalyst and powered solely by solar energy. Scientists are hoping to upscale this design to provide a more eco-friendly and sustainable alternative to the current method of ethylene production. Thank you for that story. And just for our listeners who don't know, we have two interns um, that have been with us for quite some time, Caroline King and... Tommy Martin, and because I teach journalism at the local community college, Cabrillo, I'm really pleased to bring on the next generation of environmental reporters and groom them to take over the world at some point, because we need you. <laughs> so thank you for all the time and effort you spend uh, helping our show go. I just wanted to appreciate all the time and effort and learning that you come to this project with. Thank you. And Thanks you're for gonna, having us. You're going to tell it like it is and should be. So. <laughs> That's right. All right, Tommy, what do you got for us? Yeah, thank you, Rachel. Um, I've got a story for our main topic of the day. 
Uh, with about half of Puerto Rico still without power, the only rehabilitation facility for children is turning to solar. In an agreement with Tesla, the nonprofit hospital in San Juan now has most of its parking lot covered in nearly 800 solar, solar panels. Excuse me. The microgrid was assembled and tested in eight days, and on a sunny day, it can produce up to 250 kilowatts of power. That's enough to power the hospital for 20 hours a day, only relying on diesel generators for a small portion of the day. The system of panels and batteries cost about $1 million, and the hospital is launching a fundraising campaign to keep the solar panels long-term. Fantastic. It's nice to see just um, everyday billionaires and um, innovators jump in uh, before getting the official you know, green light. Just do it. Um, there, there was such a big need. People were going to die. So coming in with solar panels, a really good idea. We'll find out what other companies have now gotten involved in the solar picture in just a moment as we report on that story. And a quick little uh, semi-technical comment on uh, what Tommy just read. Um, 250 kilowatts. Uh, for most people, that probably doesn't mean much. But just for reference, uh, my house, and I think Rachel's house is comparable. We have solar on our roofs. And um, mine, anyway, is of the order of three to four kilowatts of power. And a watt, you know, is not an amount of energy. It's, an, it's a rate of energy flow. So on a sunny day, my array can produce electricity at a rate of approximately uh, three to four kilowatts. And Rachel's is probably similar. Do you happen to, somewhere in there. Uh, that's a typical range for a home. So 250 kilowatts, well, hey, that's a quarter of a megawatt, a quarter of a thousand um, kilowatts, <laughs> a quarter of a million watts. That's a lot of solar panels. <laughs> and a lot of power needed by a hospital that keeps people alive. You know, that was the big worry that these hospitals were not resilient at all. They just went down and people did die because um, they're kept alive by all this electricity that, that all the high-tech gear keeps them breathing and, uh, you know, keeps their IVs flowing and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, another story that's even more high-tech in some ways, um, a new study is improving science's ability to simulate the effects of geoengineering on Earth's temperature. A group of scientists at Boulder's National Center for Atmospheric Research developed a specialized algorithm model that varies the amount and location of geoengineering. This is a simulation. So far, all these plans are theoretical. They include injecting sulfur dioxide into the upper atmosphere to cool the Earth or installing giant mirrors in space. The model successfully kept the Earth's surface temperatures near 2020 levels against a background of increasing greenhouse gas emissions. So it's assuming that we didn't do anything and just kept on burning the level we are now and extrapolated into the future. There are many concerns with geoengineering, including having to continually spray sulfur dioxide to keep the planet cool. By the end of the century, the amount of this substance needed each year to offset human-caused global warming would be almost five times the amount spewed into the air by Mount Pinatubo back in 1991. Changing the upper atmosphere could also change rainfall patterns, slow ozone hole heal healing, and would do nothing to stop ocean acidification. The study's authors acknowledge the risks of altering complex systems we still know so little about. On the other hand, they point to the risk associated with our current altering of the atmosphere with rising greenhouse gas emissions. With better modeling, they hope to better measure the risks and benefits and efficacy of various types of geoengineering. So they got a more sophisticated model that says if we spray sulfur at the equator, what happens if we spray it in these five places around the globe? You know, how does that turn out? And they found that it kept the planet cool. Uh, that's only one type of geoengineering they studied. There are others, as I mentioned, like putting giant mirrors or umbrellas up there in outer space. And there was another, I think, Joe, you mentioned where you could um, spray the, the snow or the ice to make it lighter. Seems yeah, also we possibly may actually, potentially we, dangerous. We may actually talk to a researcher who's working on some things having to do with the modification of the, or the, the brightening of polar ice. It's kind of interesting, and, you know, you just never know what sorts of side effects, let alone costs, these things are going to have. So you had a short item, and then we're going to go to our interview yeah, with Anna Yeah, actually, and it was a nice segue. My short item is, uh, is about the brightening of... Uh, things in the lower atmosphere, namely uh, diesel-powered ships. 
going across the oceans are a major influence on weather, as it turns out. Uh, they make these long, miles-long sulfate-riddled uh, tracks of smoke in the air. And that stuff um, causes atmospheric uh, moisture to condense into many little particles instead of the usual natural situation, which is fewer, larger particles. When you have many little particles, you have greater total surface area, so you scatter light much more effectively. So these become very bright um, trails of aerosols. Well, anyway, th since they're such tiny particles, they much more easily get wafted high into the atmosphere. And it turns out thunderstorms that are, exist along the zones of the world's oceans where ships travel a lot are way more intense, like five times as intense as thunderstorms elsewhere over the oceans. So we're making, we are making very intense thunderstorms in a fairly narrow, the shipping tracks of, of the world's oceans. That's kind of interesting. It is interesting. Is it possible that they could eventually make a shipping electric that would be less impactful on the yeah. atmosphere? Yeah, well, when Jack Martin, who was the guy most responsible for our listeners in North Carolina now hearing us regularly, he was out here on our show, he talked about electric boats and ships a great big old ship is going to be a tougher tougher thing to do than than you know like ferries or like the whale watch boat that i went out on uh last uh, couple days ago i gotta tell you <laughs> i almost forgot to say you have to in the next week get thee out on the monterey bay maybe not on a day like today where it's raining out here looks very dark on our webcam and it's if not you're that from dark. north carolina you can get on a plane and then go out on the bay <laughs> yeah but but anyway the whales in monterey bay are amazing now i saw 100 humpback whales including just breaching right next to the boat and about 20 20 blue whales wow. close to the boat, the world's largest ever creatures, larger even than any dinosaurs. And we could see them. And at one point, I have to say, this is like one of the most transcendent moments in my life. We had two blue whales spouting just off the boat, and then they came towards the boat, and then they slowly went under the boat. And you could see this flaming green, blue huge leviathan ghosts under the bow and right under the boat and then they appeared magically on the other side of the boat just that flaming blue green ghostly appearance of those whales making their way right under the boat was just <laughs> absolutely incredible so uh, anyway you can you too can do this uh, the way it's whale soup out there for at least the next week <laughs> whale so. soup. not the kind you eat well we're really happy um to have a story that's sort of about the ocean because the ocean creates these huge hurricanes and as you know uh, did a huge amount of damage in uh, puerto rico on the island they are still recovering things are still really difficult there but there is some silver lining potentially to this story and that is when your entire grid goes down there's an opportunity to perhaps reimagine a more resilient grid and one that relies more heavily on solar energy so we're going to begin with um talking to Anna Campoy. She's a journalist, just like us, who went there, spent a lot of time. She reports on Latin America in general, but this story uh, really attracted her attention. So we're going to go to that now. Thank you for being a guest here on Planet Watch. Anna Campoy, thank you for being a guest here on Planet Watch. We really appreciate your time. I first uh, learned about your work by reading it on Quartz, which is an online magazine. And I wanted to talk to you about uh, what you learned reporting on Puerto Rico's efforts to bring in solar in the wake of Hurricane Maria. So let's just start out by um, giving us an overview of kind of how that country is is dealing with the crisis in terms of its energy. Um, thank you for having me. Um, so Puerto Rico's energy system was in a very was in very bad shape even before the hurricane hit. And so in the aftermath of the hurricane, it's been terribly difficult to even just um, get power to people. Um, so right now, I think they, they were briefly at 50% um, of uh, generation, and then there was another big blackout. And so it's just kind of um, they, they get ahead and then, you know, ha um, have something go wrong and, they're back at, um, you know, um, less power than before. So um, this, this uh, the electric company has been in trouble for a long time. It filed for bankruptcy 
um, in the summer. And um, and I think people within Puerto Rico and outside Puerto Rico have been looking at ways of reforming the system for a while. Um, it's not, it hadn't been very easy before the hurricane. It's um, a very entrenched company. There are a lot of people who uh, benefit from it and a powerful interest. And so um, it, it, the company had not wanted to, you know, let go of, of uh, the monopoly it had. The hurricane is somewhat changing that because the company was left in a vulnerable position. And then you have all these people without power and, you know, it's become a necessity to, to change how the company does business. And um, so we're in that process of people kind of um, different uh, people with different ideas trying to push them. And we still don't know what is going to come out of it, but that's where we are right now. So it sounds like a PREPA, which is the energy company, sort of a, a little bit of a corrupt monopoly that has been in place for a long time and that this may be weakening it enough to provide opportunities for solar. Uh, but it doesn't sound like there's a big centralized coordinator of how all these competing ideas will be coordinated. In, a, in other words, we heard about Tesla putting in solar panels for a children's hospital, um, but that just seemed like a kind of an ad hoc effort? Well, um, so to put things a little bit into context, um, until just a few years ago, Puerto Rico didn't even have an energy regulator. So that, that was put in place um, in 2014, and that's the agency that's supposed to, to a certain extent, um, regulate some of these processes. I mean, there are laws in the books that allow for solar. Um, there are laws in the books that allow for mini grids, microgrids, which um, are essentially systems that can operate off the grid and on the grid. Um, but, but the, for example, for the microgrids, there hadn't been any rulemaking. And so um, the Energy Commission, which is this regulator, has been writing the rules post-Maria. Um, so, and then aside from the Energy Commission, you have the oversight board that was set up by a law that allowed Puerto Rico to for bankruptcy. And so um, those two entities are now trying to coordinate with each other. So you have that going on. But then you have all these companies um, that are coming in and trying to get their foot in the door and doing their own efforts. And you have nonprofits doing solar work as well so yeah i mean i guess at this point it's all happening at the same time and but it's not necessarily in concert right no, no coordination in, in other words so if you were to um liken it to uh, the united states after the civil war there's all these people who some of whom have good intentions other others maybe just want to make a buck as a homeowner it must be um really kind of confusing if you're being approached by you know, well-meaning and sometimes not well-meaning people. Is there any centralized place where people can go to make sure they're not being taken advantage of if they're homeowners? Well, I mean, at this point, I don't think that the efforts are being, um, they're not happening that much at the homeowner level. Hmm. Um, so all of these projects um, are essentially donations. A lot of them are donations by some of these companies and nonprofits and they're focusing on critical infrastructure like firehouses and um, hospitals, schools. So at this point, it's, um, it, you know, it's not like they're uh, setting up shop and selling products, mm. as far as I can tell. Um, there's, uh, there's certain uh, rulemaking that needs to happen for that. Um, so... I think, um, I mean, it seems like a long time since the hurricane passed, but it's, you know, not been that long. So this is a process that I think will take a little while. And the other complicating factor is that um, as they are managing this emergency, because it's still an emergency in terms of power, um, you know, all of these entities 
you know, can't kind of plan out the future, you know, in a week or something. You know, all of these, all of these things have to be thought out carefully. Yeah, the, the biggest, you know, part of the story seems like from the solar perspective is what an opportunity it could be to shift the entire, you know, uh, island toward using solar. What's the biggest solar company maybe that's operating right now and trying to get the biggest amount of solar into the island? I, I, I think all of them are trying to do different things. Um, I don't know if there's one that has done more. I mean, Tesla, for example, has said publicly it's talking with the governor. Um, so behind the scenes, we don't know what's going on, what kinds of arrangements they're talking about. But um, I guess the, the other thing I would say is important to uh, remember that there is no way that solar can be can can you know that all of the energy the island needs will be produced by solar there there's going to have to be other types of energy generation including a central grid of some kind some kind of central generation that um will supply the most critical uh facilities or or the ones that need big amounts of power i think you wrote that um prior to Hurricane Maria, one of the crippling things to the economy of Puerto Rico was fossil fuel costs. Is that going to still be the same problem once the new grid is put in? Because they're burning fossil fuels in their power plants, is that correct? Yeah, um, fossil fuels account for about 50% of energy generation or accounted for before Maria. And um, that's has to change and and the power utility was figuring out how to change that even before the hurricane um it's kind of tricky right now to figure out how the grid is going to be rebuilt um you have some people who say just put it up the way it was as quickly as possible because we're in an emergency and we just need to get power to everyone and then there's other people who say if we're going to rebuild it, let's rebuild it better. The problem with um, that approach is that that's going to take time. And so um, at this point, it's it's very unclear what is going to emerge in the end um, in this process of, like, trying to balance both things. Right. And was there anything surprising about reporting on solar in Puerto Rico when you went there and, and did your reporting? Um, I guess um, I was surprised by, um, I mean, it wasn't that surprising because, you know, imagine how how you would feel after living for weeks in the dark, you know? And so when I was out there and I went with a nonprofit that was handing out solar lanterns and, um, and um, solar water filters people were just crowding around the people who were giving them out and it was you know like um people really wanted them they had heard that they that they were going to be giving them out and they came you know dozens of people um and that was very interesting to see you know i think that um regardless of this you know what happens who comes out winning um how much solar power it Puerto Rico ends up um, installing. I mean, there's really been kind of, it's been an eye-opening situation for many people about alternative energy, green energy, solar energy. Now they kind of understand it and and, um, and really appreciate it because at this point they don't have any other options. So even a tiny little solar lantern can make a huge difference in your life. Right. You you really saw um, a community that had gone back in time, you know, 150 years before electricity, you know, was invented and people had kerosene lanterns. So having something, anything seemed to be, um, you know, a little bit of hope for them. So they're not in the dark, literally. What What percentage right now of Puerto Rico has electricity at all at this point? Um, the last time I checked, um, for a brief moment, um, it was 50%. Uh, 
a couple, the thing is, the, the other tricky thing is about the way um, the government is giving up, is giving us updates. It's giving, it's providing us with the amount of generation that has been restored, not the amount of customers um, who have electricity. And so for a brief moment this week, they were at 50% of generation and then there was this big blackout and um and they it went down so they're more or less around half um we don't know how many customers that is yeah so looking toward the future if you were to um have a best case scenario that involves as you said a mixture of traditional or you know fossil fuel um generation and solar and other kinds of energy um in your best case guess you know in 10 years what do you think of course this is speculation but you know that's all we can do right now what do you think is an ideal resilient puerto rico in terms of its energy look like um yeah i don't know that's a tough question i mean the, the people that i've spoken with who have thought a lot about this even before the hurricane because as i said it was clear that what they had in place was not working they kind of see um system where you're gonna have a lot of uh energy providers throughout the island right now another big problem is that you have the the biggest um plants on one side of the island and the population centers on the other side of the island. And mm -hmm. so it's all mismatched, the infrastructure with the people who need the electricity. And so that's also been part of the reason why it's been hard to restore power. But um, so what people who have looked at this for a long time say is it has to be a system where the generation is more evenly distributed around the island and where you have a variety of providers, including private investors who, you know, invest in um, either solar or windmills or whatever it may be. And then you have also consumers who are their own, who are providing, who are generating their own energy and then providing the access to the grid. And then you have some sort of um, utility that will have, not necessarily, you know, I don't think anyone is, thinking that Puerto Rico should be burning oil or diesel, maybe um, natural gas or um, something, you know, uh, less polluting than what they're burning now. Uh, but um, so you would have a mix um, and um, you would have a lot of microgrids and, and that would make the system more resilient uh, yeah. if you... If you have a part of the island that's affected, then, you know, the rest of the island can help. Right. I think I might Hello? have... Hi. Uh, we, you dropped out for a minute, but um, I think you said the rest of the island can... Oh, if something happens, if you have a system where you have a more more evenly distributed generation, then it's easy to, to, um, to react to, uh, or to, um, sorry, let me say that again. Um, it's easier to respond to an emergency in any part of the system. You know, like if, if, a, if a hurricane or, or um, any other emergency um, damages part of the system, then the other parts can kind of make up for that as opposed to, you know, I mean, the other thing about Maria is that it um it was unprecedented and it hit it hit the whole island and so we should also remember that yes unprecedented but maybe not the last we've seen as we have had some word from scientists that perhaps hurricanes are going to get more powerful as global warming progresses so who knows uh, what the future holds and an island is particularly vulnerable because it needs to get everything from outside. So anything it can do to make itself more self-sufficient, such as solar, wind, anything that's locally generated seems like a smart thing regardless of why they're having trouble. Um, it seems like a, a resilient uh, thing to do. And I, I really appreciate your reporting. Um, would you like to give out a website or anything where people can read more of your work? 
Sure, yeah, you can go to Quartz. The website is qz.com, um, and um, you can find our coverage there. Um, you can uh, look me up on Twitter. Um, it's ANA underscore C-A-M-P-O-Y underscore, and um, you'll find um, coverage, my coverage on, on Puerto Rico there too. Good. Well, thank you, Ana Campoy from Quartz uh, Magazine online. We appreciate your coverage and thank you for sharing it with us here on Planet Watch. Thank you okay. so much for having me. Okay, so we're in, in between two interviews on this topic. And uh, just wanted to remind you listeners that you can contact us during this show or after at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. So you can email questions or comments to us now or soon, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. So stay tuned for another interview. Um, and we're just about to run that. So I'm very pleased to have with me today on Planet Watch, Kathy Kunkel. She is an energy analyst and she works on energy issues. She's been studying Puerto Rico for quite a long time. She is with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, which is an organization that conducts research on financial and economic issues related to energy and the environment. And their mission is to accelerate the transition to a diverse, sustainable and profitable energy economy and to reduce the dependence on coal and other non-renewable resources. So welcome, Kathy. Thanks for being with us on Planet Watch. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about Puerto Rico, but I'd love to talk to bro about broader things with you because this is obviously just one case, and uh, maybe it's going to be a harbinger, maybe it's not. So let's um, start with Puerto Rico, and then we'll broaden it out to other situations and renewable opportunities. Um, I was just speaking with a reporter, Ana Campoy, who has been doing some reporting for Quartz magazine on Puerto Rico's opportunities and challenges after Maria. And you've been studying it for a long time. What do you see happening there now as far as the opportunity to really make a major shift toward renewable energy? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's clear that Hurricane Maria has exposed in a very catastrophic and tragic way how... Um, how terrible the energy system is in Puerto Rico and how not resilient it is um, to these kinds of events. Um, and so we're seeing, uh, you know, for the first time, uh, private solar developers like Tesla and other companies showing a major interest in getting into Puerto Rico and saying, you know, we could do a lot better here. We could have uh, solar and battery systems. Um, we could have uh, more resilient microgrids, uh, community systems that could be isolated from the grid and that could be delivering power to people during storms. Um, so, you know, I think the, the crisis, again, has just highlighted, you know, how bad the system is um, and shown that there is a real opportunity to do better. Yeah. So what kind of opportunities are there? Um, I, from what I understand, it's, it's kind of a free-for-all chaotic situation at the moment. That could also be a good thing because it's not so entrenched. I don't know. Well, I mean, there certainly are a lot of entrenched fossil fuel interests in Puerto Rico. Um, we've been, uh, for the last three years, my organization has been involved in proceedings before the Energy Commission in Puerto Rico um, and with, you know, efforts to... Uh, to transform and reform the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, uh, which up until 2014 was a public agency that basically operated outside of any kind of public oversight um, and had an electrical system that was largely reliant on oil-fired generation. Um, so, and it uh, was increasingly in bad financial state straits until in 2014 it uh, essentially became insolvent and was unable to raise money from the capital markets. Um, and so, uh, and the, the Energy Regulatory Commission was not uh, established until 2014 when the situation became bad enough that the government was like, oh, we need to do something to really uh, transform the energy system here. This is pretty bad. Um, and so the Energy Commission was tasked with this very difficult challenge of how do we take this uh, utility that is... Uh, a, bankrupt, and B, reliant on old uh, oil-fired generation that's out of compliance with federal air quality standards and 
transform this into a modern utility. So that's sort of the backdrop of this. And then it, you know, obviously was decimated by this uh, storm. Um, and so, um, you know, but prior to Hurricane Maria, there was uh, an opportunity to go for renewables because, uh, you know, it was clear to everyone that PREPA needed to change. You know, it's relying on these old power plants um, that are out of compliance with air quality standards. And unfortunately, PREPA's vision for the future was to basically transition to natural gas. So to go from an oil-based system to a natural gas-based system. And they were saying, well, maybe we'll get to 15% renewable energy by 2035. So, you know, PREPA did not have uh, any kind of serious interest in renewable energy. It, all of its pipeline of projects was like, we're going to build this expensive natural gas import terminal and convert these power plants. So they were not looking at things in the, from a perspective of how do we build out more resilient and small-scale renewable energy systems. Um, but that being said, uh, the Energy Commission did uh, question a lot of PREPA's assumptions and uh, you know, put the put the brakes on there building this LNG import terminal. And so the commission was trying to move PREPA in the right direction towards um, considering renewable energy and energy efficiency um, and, uh, and, and sort of, you know, changing the vision of the system. So it's a long background of how we got here. Right. So are they open now to uh, looking at microgrids as, as we were talking earlier with Anna Campoy, she, she was saying that that's a more resilient system. She also told me that the generation is on one side of the island and the people are on the other. So you had to have these long lines. Um, that yeah, that, that's a big, that has been one of the biggest challenges to getting the power back on in Puerto Rico is that the most of the power plants are on the southern shore of the island and most of the population, including the capital of San Juan, is in the north. Um, and these transmission lines went through the forested mountains of the interior of Puerto Rico and are all just down. Um, and so, yeah, so that obviously highlights the importance of having generation actually close to the people who are consuming the electricity. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there, uh, there are... Many, there are competing visions within Puerto Rican civil society and government as to what the way forward is at the moment. I mean, I think PREPA uh, still is sort of clinging to its historic mindset of being the central monopoly utility with these big power plants. Um, but certainly the Energy Commission uh, is moving ahead with recognizing the importance of microgrids. They just issued an order last week where they're seeking comments from stakeholders about how they can develop the right regulations to uh, incentivize the development of microgrids in Puerto Rico. So, I mean, that's a very important process that's, that's going on there. And again, you know, there are all these private interests, um, solar developers who are, are coming in and starting to build projects and saying, hey, we could do a lot more of this if the right rules were in place. Yeah. So how much power, and I mean political power in this sense, does the Energy Commission in Puerto Rico have to shift things in a major way toward renewables? Does it have the clout um, to make PREPA do it or to incentivize, as you say? How does that work? Yeah. I mean, it has, by legislation, it has a lot of authority. It could it could do it. Uh, by, you know, if you're just looking at the law and saying what are the Energy Commission's powers, it certainly has the power uh, to issue these regulations to, you know, it is, the, it is the primary regulatory entity over the energy system in Puerto Rico, full stop. Um, but the challenge is that the governor does not actually like the Energy Commission. And so, uh, you know, earlier this year, the Energy Commission was sort of living in fear that its budget would be cut to zero and it would be effectively rendered incapable of doing anything. So, I mean, that's kind of the political environment in Puerto Rico is this fight, I would say, between competing visions for the energy system. Um, so it's, it's not clear whether uh, in practice uh, the Energy Commission will be able to carry out its visions or, or whether it will be uh, sort of back to business as usual for PREPA. How uh, do the electorate feel about this? Don't they have some power in this equation as well? Since they elect the governor, they must have had right. a real wake-up call here about energy. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, we've been working with uh, 
a coalition. It's a pretty interesting and unique coalition I haven't really seen elsewhere in the U.S., but uh, business and environmental industry and environmental interests in Puerto Rico for the last several years have been united in saying we want reform of PREPA, we want more renewable energy, it's cheaper, it's more resilient, um, it's, you know, better for everyone, basically. Um, so, you know, the civil society groups that we've been working with um, have certainly uh, are sort of remarkably on the same page. Um, but, you know, time time will tell, I think, how the governor's legacy pans out with this storm response. I mean, I certainly... Uh, people going into their seventh week without power, I'm not very happy. I imagine it feels much like they've turned back the clock 150 years, <laughs> pre-industrial revolution yeah. almost. So there's gonna be probably an outfall of political change once all things settle, once people get past survival mode, I can imagine. Right. This, it, it did remind me too of a little microcosm of what's happening in our country where people with interests, not necessarily those of the electorate, have gotten into power in regulatory bodies uh, like the EPA. And I don't know how much American policy influences what's happening in Puerto Rico at all, but it sure sounds familiar to me when you look at people like Scott Pruitt, who don't seem to have the interests of the environment at all in mind. In fact, they've been sent to de dismantle environmental regulations. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the Puerto Rico Energy Commission, I think, is is pretty unique in, in the sense that it is very uh, um, aware of and trying to fulfill its mission of being a strong regulator of PREPA, which is exactly what Puerto Rico needs. Um, as far as uh, federal policy, uh, one of the major things that Congress has done in the past couple of years in response to Puerto Rico's overall financial situation is... Um, appoint a financial control board to basically oversee the island's finances and uh, come up with debt restructuring plans and um, put uh, Puerto Rico's uh, uh, insolvent public agencies into bankruptcy. So, uh, you know, that adds another layer of complication because the Energy Commission and the Oversight Board and the governor are all kind of fighting with each other. <laughs> Wow, it's so complicated and such a long history of neglect on the part of our country toward Puerto Rico, and I don't see that changing, given our president's comments initially, like, oh, there's going to be debts to pay at the end of all this, instead of finding the opportunity to help Puerto Rico get on its feet in a bigger, long-term way. It's very discouraging, the whole political spatting between the mayor of San Juan, was it, and the president yeah. on publicly on Twitter just didn't set the right tone for let's work together. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to conceive of, I think, in in the mainland U.S. of what it's like to go for seven weeks without power. But I mean, people are dying in Puerto Rico and like the political tone uh, in the U.S. does not reflect that at all. And, and it's fallen off some of our media uh, front page. That's why we're doing a story on it here so that people can be reminded that mm, this is an ongoing tragedy that is these are our fellow countrymen not you know some far away foreign place it may be far away but it's not foreign it's part of the united states in a big way so surprising how many people don't know that yeah so uh, looking bigger picture now um what do you think has been learned in puerto rico that might apply to other parts of the mainland united states Um, if anything, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think in a way, uh, you know, this, I mean, this is the strongest hurricane to hit Puerto Rico in probably since the thirties, um, if not ever. Um, and I think, you know, we would be wise to think about the vulnerabilities of our electrical systems to climate change. I mean, we still do have very much a centralized grid. And I know that Hurricane Sandy was a wake-up call to the New York State regulators about, hey, we need microgrids here. And, you know, they have, uh, you know, because they lack the financial challenges of Puerto Rico, they have had sort of an easier process of coming up with the regulations and the process for developing microgrids and more distributed energy in New York as a response to Hurricane Sandy. But, you know, it would be nice if we could actually be a little bit more proactive on this and say, hey, our, our infrastructure in this country is not actually that resilient. We do rely very much on centralized power grids uh, and 
we could do a lot better for people if we were uh, making a much more of an effort to locate generation close to load and build out a more resilient power grid as uh, storms intensify. And it, it seems like a somewhat ironic thing that the very thing that's causing our, our attention to come to microgrids and solar energy and resiliency is the effects of climate change. So the very solution that might come about after these destructive storms is solar, and that in turn prevents future climate change. So there is a circle in the story. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's really important lessons uh, to be learned from all this. And the, and the cost alone of rebuilding rather than preventing seems to be um, mounting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's another thing, too. I mean, well, Puerto Rico has already has very expensive electricity rates, so over 20 cents a kilowatt hour, so Ooh, wow. you know, significantly higher than most U.S. states and, you know, with a population that is has about a third of the pop, per capita income of the U.S. Tw so. 20 cents a kilowatt hour. And what is it there in West Virginia in the heart of coal country? Uh, we're at about 11 cents. So we're 13. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that, yeah. that adds up when you're talking about, you know, air conditioning in, in the case of Puerto Rico and other energy demands, um, here, depending on where you are, you heat, you know, some people heat with electricity, not everyone. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, solar energy is already very cost competitive in Puerto Rico, but, uh, you know, even if the rates were lower, if you start to factor in the, the cost of the disruption of to an economy of going for months without power, I mean, that's an astronomical cost that needs to be considered when you're looking at how are we planning out these systems. Yeah, it's really not just about power, is it? It's about the entire economy being dependent on one type of power. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, this is absolutely, obviously, absolutely like crippling to the Puerto Rican economy as far as, you know, businesses that are going to have to shut down and uh, people who are fleeing the island. I mean, it's just not, you can't just look at this as far as like, well, how many cents per kilowatt hour is this technology versus that one? Right. It's so much more complex and bigger. So in the ideal world, if you could fast forward 20, 15 or 20 years in Puerto Rico, um, what would you like to see since it is somewhat of a blank slate now? What would be the ideal setup for energy for that island? Yeah, I mean, I think it would have um, certainly much greater reliance on microgrids. Um, a lot of, uh, well, first of all, microgrids, uh, both at the, for more remote communities, um, for municipalities, and also for like critical facilities like hospitals um, and emergency centers. Um, rooftop solar, I mean, Puerto Rico is a Caribbean island. It's not like it's not sunny there. Um, and um, and also, you know, more utility scale solar too, because, um, you know, you, it's, uh, you, you know, regard, even if you're talking utility scale solar, there's still a benefit from not sending over a billion dollars a year out of the Puerto Rican economy to pay for oil and gas that's imported into Puerto Rico. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, anything you'd like to leave us with as far as thoughts uh, in the bigger picture of a good energy policy that would make us more resilient and also prevent future global warming? Yeah, I mean, I think this, uh, you know, the, this in many ways was sort of the, a, a, the perfect storm in Puerto Rico, this combination of this hurricane on top of a, a devast financially devastated island and a grid that was uh, built to be almost as unresilient as you can imagine a grid to be. Um, and, you know, it's resulted in this terrible humanitarian catastrophe, but um, there are lessons that we can learn from this in the mainland as well, um, as far as what we actually want our energy system to look like um, and to prioritize uh, solar and resiliency moving forward. Well, I want to thank you for being with us here on Planet Watch. I've been speaking with Kathy Kunkel. She's an energy analyst with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, a project of the Growald Family Fund. You can learn more about them at growaldfamilyfund.org. Thank you so much for being with us here on Planet Watch. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Have a good day.
And thank you so much for tuning in to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm Joe Jordan. And we have a special guest for the next few minutes with us in the studio. Just wandered in here off the street. Barry Scott, who uh, is uh, an expert on energy education. In fact, he's a main player in a national organization called NEED, N-E-E-D, National Energy education development and they put on workshops for teachers and um, one reason I got him in here is because he's an expert on energy grids and things but he also was sent as part of his mission with need to a town in the heartland of the United States which is a contrast a stark contrast to what we just heard about in Puerto Rico remember in 2007 a huge tornado ran right through the middle of Greensburg Kansas tore it to shreds and the electric grid and electric power and buildings were just destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. But they came back. They came roaring back and became a very green town. Barry can tell us more about that and what he saw in the two minutes we have remaining. So welcome, Barry. Oh, thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, it's, I think I think Greensburg is a is a great case uh, for uh, for Puerto Rico to to look at. Um, I think Puerto Rico might be a little bit more of an extreme case, but. Uh, Greensburg came back with a vengeance uh, after, after having, I think, 90% of the structures leveled. And I mean, you can go on the internet and you can look at the before and after pictures. This F5 tornado came right through the center of the small town and, and wiped out everything. Uh, the people there that I met uh, uh, told me it was, a, it was a miracle. They had, they had some forewarning and a lot of people uh, were able to get oh, kind of away. But still, 11 people uh, passed. And we went out and we spent time with, the, I think, about 180 kids, every K through 12 student who came in. And, and most of them were still living outside of the city limits a year later because they haven't rebuilt that much of it. But what they were able to do was come back with a commitment to build as much as they could, as green as they could, and, and, and power that town with 100% renewable energy. Um, I don't know that they've made that goal yet, but... They have uh, installed, I think they have 10 1.25 megawatt wind turbines. They're grid connected, and I think that their, their production is greater overall than their consumption, and they're tied to the grid. They're tied to their area grid. Um, and this is, this is something uh, that, well, Puerto Rico can, can look at this as, as one model, right? Um, what I hope that, that they'll do what I hope that Puerto Rico will do, because it sounds like they have a very old system, they have a fossil fuel-based system, and this, this adversity could be an opportunity. They can rebuild better, they can have a renewable, and, and, and have, a, have a good outcome. Well, thank you for being here, Thanks, and we hope Barry. to talk to you again soon. This is Planet Watch. I am Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'd like to especially thank Caroline King and Tommy Martin, our interns. And please uh, don't forget, you can tune in to Planet Watch both online at zbsradio.com. Or if you'd like to get our podcast, you can go to patreon.com and become a member at $2 a month or more. And you'll get our podcast first thing on your iPod downloaded specially for you. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next week right here on Planet Watch. Thank you.